Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and in this episode, we're going to talk to Jess Walter. Now, for those of you that know anything at all about me, you will know that I hail from Spokane, Washington. Originally, I spent most of my life there, uh, worked a 20-year law enforcement career in that city. So I have an affinity for my hometown. Uh, what you might not know is there's a pretty rich literary tradition coming out of Spokane. I interviewed awesome Maria Bradley, who uh, is a transplant that uh, lives there, uh, who writes paranormal uh, action romance. Uh, and her uh, Viking Warrior series is very successful. Uh, going back a little further, you have fantasy author David Eddings, who was uh, at the top tier of that genre for quite some time. In addition to Terry Davis, uh, who wrote Vision Quest, you might remember that book. It was made into a movie with Matthew Modine and uh, was filmed right there in Spokane. But if I had to pick one author who is uh, the crown jewel of the literary tradition in Spokane, it would easily be, for me, uh, Jess Walter. Uh, Jess is a great writer, and uh, as it turns out, talking to him, a great guy as well. So I'm looking forward to sharing that uh, interview with you. Uh, I've long admired his work, and I, I can't recommend it uh, strongly enough. Uh, but before we get to Jess's interview, uh, I want to remind you that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. And here to tell you a couple of things coming out from Down and Out Books this month is Lance Wright. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Lance here from Down and Out Books. Hard to believe it's December already, but we have a terrific lineup of titles ready to hit the bookshelves to close out the year. First up, Skunk Train, an action-packed thriller by Joe Clifford that follows two teenagers, Kyle and Lizzie, who stumble upon stolen drug money and set off to find Kyle's father, a Hollywood director he's never met with drug dealers, dirty cops, and the Mexican mob on their heels. Next up, welcome to the world of Cockney rhyming slang, the theme of Trouble and Strife, an anthology edited by Simon Wood and featuring stories by Steve Brewer, Robert Dugoni, Katrina McPherson, and more. Also coming out this month is a very special cross-genre novel by Lawrence Kelter, titled Encrypting Maya, the story of two exceptional kids who set out to change the world and a world that fought back every step of the way. Check out Down and Out Books for more information about these titles and others being published this month. Thanks for allowing me to share some of our books published in 2019, Frank. And looking forward, we are so excited about what's coming out in 2020. Uh, thanks, Lance. You know, I have to tell you folks, uh, Down and Out Books is just chock full of good authors and good books. And so if you take a dive in, uh, you're going to find something you like. Let, let's move on to our conversation with Jess. Now, if you're not familiar with Jess Walter, he started life, professional life as a journalist. He was a, a, a reporter for the Spokesman Review, and he did some uh, stellar reporting on the Ruby Ridge incident involving Randy Weaver 
in North Idaho, uh, but, uh, but Spokane had a role to play in that as well. He wrote a book called Every Knee Shall Bow, which was a uh, coverage of that event. Uh, and, and one of the things that was great about it was how absolutely objective his writing was. He didn't uh, take the side of law enforcement, nor did he disparage them. He didn't take the side of Randy Weaver, nor did he disparage him. And you don't get that that much from nonfiction reporting uh, these days. It doesn't seem like to me everybody's partisan. And so it was a really well done book. Uh, and then he moved on to crime fiction with uh, Over Tumbled Graves and um uh, from there, his his writing has gone an interesting direction, and, and he and I talked about that uh, a bit. So uh, rather than listen to me talk about Jess Walter, why don't we hear what he has to say about it? Well, hey, Jess, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Great to be here. So I think this is one of the few times uh, on the show here that I have had another Spokane author on. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I talked to Brian Thornton, uh, who's over in Seattle now. He's a Spokane boy. I'm not sure if you know him. Uh, yeah, I know the name. It's funny, but I think, uh, because writers work in solitude, people expect that we're all uh, uh, down at the writers' union together or something. But, <laughs> but, uh, well, now you started your career in, in Spokane as a journalist, right? Yeah, I um, writing novels was always kind of my dream. But like most people, you can't just get out and go to work at the novel factory. So um, uh, for me, it was a way to sort of, sort of get my chops as a writer. I worked for my high school and college newspapers, and I loved them both. I mean, I, I'm a child of uh, um, the 70s and uh, all the president's men, and so really saw journalism as a calling. And my first book, in fact, came out of my reporting, um, my coverage of Ruby Ridge, the shootout mm -hmm. in North Idaho. Um, and But that whole time I was also on the side writing short stories and sending them out to get rejected at magazines and um, <laughs> writing novels that uh, still are in my garage and uh, you know trying to hone my craft as a fiction writer. Well, that, that first uh, book, that nonfiction book, uh, Every Knee Shall Bow, that talks about yeah. the Ruby Ridge incident. You were also on a American Experience or somebody like that. PBS did a, a special on that, did a documentary, and, and you were one of the commentators for that. Yeah, that that just aired recently. I think it's maybe the fourth documentary on Ruby Ridge I've, I've been a part of. So, every, uh, but I thought that was the best one. They had some amazing footage I hadn't seen before, and uh, I I approached that. It's interesting because we're at a time now in American history where people sort of expect journalists to come with some angle. You know, the either you're a MSNBC or you're Fox, and mm -hmm. uh, and. And the trust of a sort of objective observer in the media, I think, has really fallen away. And I have really strong opinions myself. But when I worked as a journalist, I really would strive to just give people the story and let them sort of understand. Not And not because I had felt like, you know, fairness to both sides. You know, sometimes there's a criminal and sometimes there's a cop, you know. And uh, it's not like you're, the, the fairness is less important to me than the sort of natural idea that um that two things can be true at one time you know and uh, that was really the way i approached the ruby ridge story but yeah it was the the american experience documentary on pbs is a great way to sort of catch up on um 
you know, it's strange to watch things you covered as a reporter become part of history. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's a really interesting um, moment kind of in our history when um, these white supremacy groups were all over the Northwest and when in their zeal to really keep track of some of these events, some federal law enforcement agencies overstepped some bounds or had some, uh, uh, you know, some mistakes that really came back to haunt them. Mm-hmm. In, in both the documentary and then having read uh, every knee shall bow your objectivity is apparent i mean you really present it okay. in yeah. a very balanced way and and if you asked if someone asked me well what what do you think his views were i mean i would hazard a guess i guess based on what else i know about you in general but i would have no idea or no real clue from from the way you covered it and the way that you wrote about it so kudos to you for that i'd say Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and to me, that was important as a reporter. I mean, that you give people information and sort of trust them to make up their own, their own opinions. It's re, it's more difficult now because people form opinions based on, uh, you know, a tweet or one Facebook post. And so, you know, getting someone to read a book length work of nuance about in which you're not giving them really, you know, any good guys or any, um, uh, anyone to, you know, sort of identify with, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a big ask for uh, the, the attention span of the culture right now. It, it truly is. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, it's kind of an interesting side note. The copy of the book that I ended up with was actually a gift from the guy who was the undercover informant that sold oh. sold the guns to uh to randy Weaver. really yeah. Ken- kenneth fadley yeah kenneth yeah Fadley's kenneth guy. yeah he gus, ended up gus Ma- gus magisano i think his name was yeah. he he ended up working uh up at uh, a place called swack hammers which no longer exists oh, sure. in spokane yeah and, yeah uh, as security or whatever and i was a patrol officer at the time and of course you know that was one of the places we found ourselves sure. many many a friday <laughs> or saturday night yeah. so i struck yeah. up a little bit of a working friendship with him or whatever wow. he ended yeah. up talking about it quite a bit and i went up there one time and he goes hey i got something for you and he signed it and gave it to me and so wow that's uh, so great yeah yeah i i never i mean i saw him in the trial and i listened to wiretaps um of him trying you know talking to randy weaver and to uh uh, Frank Kumnick and a couple of other people in that case, but I had no idea. He ended up uh, <laughs> he ended up bouncing up at Swacks. Uh, <laughs> he was kind of running the bouncers, yeah. Was he? Wow, that's wild. Yeah, and yeah. that place needed bouncers. I'm sure you oh, made I, a few calls there. Yeah, I went through several iterations. It was one of those places I think that every city has yeah. uh, a few of where it's just uh, you know it doesn't matter what business goes in there. It usually causes it's just a trouble spot, you know, and yeah. And, yeah. That's just the way it goes. Uh, yeah. I, I can't remember if that was the first book of yours I read or, or had or the second, because your second book, your first novel, Over Tumbled Graves, was also a gift. Uh, I got that one from uh, an uncle of mine who worked uh, for the police department as well. He's a oh, detective. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. I'm sure you remember Terry Morehouse. 
Oh, uh, sure. I did, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Terry's my old ski buddy. So I used to, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> he was, um, yeah, Terry's, Terry was terrific. And I would ask him some cop questions sometimes. And I'd always phrase them, look, uh, I'm going to do what I want in my novel. Just tell me how uh, implausible this is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, pretty proud of the fact that he was a technical advisor and he said hey you got to read this book yeah. you'll like it and yeah. and i did yeah. it was a it was a really oh, well done, well done crime you. novel sometimes people will want me to be more procedural or you know to be more mm-hmm. precise and i'll uh, well, you're one of the authors i always send them to if you if you want to know what a spokane police officer would have really done in those situations you might want to read frank Zafiro's work so, yeah. <laughs> well i think like you said we all stray sometimes so hopefully they're not looking yeah. at it for uh, textbook yes. per- accuracy i will ask you though what 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 drew you to uh your first novel at least the first one published uh, to be a crime fiction novel, to be a, essentially a procedural. It's it's interesting. I always loved uh, both. I mean, I, I especially loved the uh, the sort of jazz and pace of noir. Uh, so even when I you know when I when I teach any creative writing class, I often make my students read either a um, a James Cain novel or a Dashiell Hammett novel, or mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, just just to under just just to hear that sound in there. And, and so, uh, I was always drawn to that. I um, I liked really liked Richard Price. I loved authors who who tried to tackle big social issues with crime novels. And um, uh, so, and and I had covered. Um, parts of two or three different serial killer cases um, before the Yates case, which was a big serial murder case mm-hmm. in Spokane. Um, there were two, there were um, some prostitutes murdered and left uh, along sort of the river, uh, and and just I was just sort of haunted by the idea of these women as um, you know as props for these killers and just how you know there was there was a ready sort of um, victim pool, you know, and, and, uh, I was, uh, I was reporting on one of those stories for the spokesman review as a newspaper reporter. And I was interviewing the family and they said, you keep calling her a prostitute. And she was our sister and, mm-hmm. you know, and she was this and that. And I, um, just the, the grief and empathy of all that. And then, and then watching the sort of industry that rose up around it, I just, it just felt like, you know, as a novelist, you write what you know. I had those two unpublished novels in my garage and I just thought, well, what do I know? And one thing I knew was reporting, you know, and I knew a little bit about some of these cases I'd covered. Uh, and then, and then watching sort of the, the way these, serial killer profilers worked um there was something about me that just about it that just struck me as cynical uh and so yeah i I, and you know i really wanted to just tell that story and i i have to say at the time as i was writing it i wasn't thinking very much about genre or where it would go in the bookstore you know i i just was thinking about the uh, demands of this particular book as i was trying to finish it you know and trying to make it all fit together and Sometimes I, I can worry that genre can be limiting. If this is the kind of book that they that you get to that you write, then you know the the industry sometimes doesn't want another kind of book from you. But uh, even some of those early readers of my crime fiction to have them come along and say, "I've been reading you since your first you know since your first procedural, and I love going to Italy with you on this last mm-hmm. book." You know, it's 
Uh, there's just no more loyal, voracious reader than someone who gobbles up, you know, crime novels. And uh, so that was a great that was a great surprise. I didn't realize that the best readers existed there. Well, and I think uh, while people are certainly uh, loyal to their genre, when they find yeah. a writer that they like, they'll they'll take a, a, a chance on them. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would draw a parallel to uh, my favorite uh, musical artist since I was about 10, and that's Bruce Springsteen. And if yeah. you look at how eclectic his career oh. has been and, and yeah. the different styles of music he's delved into at different times, and sure, the Born in the USA crowd didn't follow him all the way through, you know, Ghost of Tom Joad and Seeger Sessions and, and the Western right. stars that just came out, but uh, a pretty good core of listeners has, and that's yeah. because they're into the art of the person and the, that they're creating. And I think I would suspect anyway, that a lot of your readers must be the same, because if you look at the progression that your literary career has taken, the, the way the books have uh, evolved and changed in which direction you've gone, you've definitely traversed more than one major genre. Yeah. I think part of that for me is, is a kind of um, aversion to being pigeonholed at all. And so, you know, my first book was nonfiction and they said, we sure love another nonfiction book from you. And then I turned in a crime novel and, uh, you know, and then they're like, wow, well, would you write a series? And I, I, I did write some of the same characters in, in small ways into the, into the later novels. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in my next novel, I have a novel coming out next year called The Cold Millions, which might be my crimiest book yet. So really? Um, yeah, I, I, I just always figure the story tells you what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. And and it sort of served me well. I was writing everything all the time. I, I couldn't help it when the publishing world chose to, you know, chose to publish something or not. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I, when writers ask me, I say, well, do you want to know what's best for, for, you know, your career and your bank book? Or do you want to know what, you know, what you should do as a, as a writer and an artist. And, you know, someone like Bruce is a great example because I think, you know, uh, I, I just bought uh, on vinyl, the wild, the innocent and the E street shuffle, you oh, know, yeah. and just, Oh, hearing the horns on that and the, mm -hmm. the youth of that uh, youthfulness of that album. And then hearing the sort of wistfulness of older Bruce, you know, the, that the aging, um, mm -hmm. I think, I think you have to allow yourself to grow and change as a writer. And, um, uh, and that's all I've tried to do is just, you know, write the next book I want to read. You know, you, you went from over tumbled graves to what I think some people might've been forgiven if they mistook for over tumbled graves too. I mean, land yeah. of land yeah. of the blind kind of starts out to seem like it's going to be another murder mystery or, or whatever. And it's, uh, you know, really something very different. Uh, the main character, Carolyn Hambury, she uh, she kind of is more in a support role, and and you examine something very different in that book than you did in the first. Yeah, it's um, I, I, like I said, I love the collisions of genre, mm -hmm. and sometimes to my, I think in a way that um, uh, that really works, and then other times in ways that uh, you know. So, so this is sort of it's it's a bit of a coming of age novel. Um, you know, wrapped around this central mystery uh, that, you know, this police detective has to, you know, look at, but, but that isn't really the question at hand. Mm -hmm. And I, I just always thought, what if, you know, I, I, I thought the setup would be kind of interesting and, and it was a way to kind of revisit these characters. And, 
to sort of teach myself how to write a different kind of novel too. Um, I don't have any training beyond um, being a voracious reader. And so um, I didn't know that I knew how to write a coming of age novel. Uh, and so to, to sort of frame it within the framework of um, the first novel and a procedural felt like uh, sort of a way to get into the story. So sometimes my desire to collide um, genres, I, I, I think of, uh, of um, like a, a restaurant owner saying, you know, my two favorite things are barbecue and vegan, you know, and sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it's a great restaurant and, and sometimes the, the people who love barbecue don't really want vegan and the people who love vegan don't really want barbecue, you know, so that, that, that's always the danger when I, you know, when I write a feminist Western or a, uh, you know, that, uh, um, you know, that readers aren't clamoring for uh, those two recipes to go together. Mm-hmm. But with the land of the blind, it was, um, uh, it's, it's funny. So I'm my, my ninth novel will come out next or my ninth book will come out next year. Um, and you probably get this. I mean, you're, you're, you're really prolific and to have different people have different favorites is really kind of wonderful. And, um, uh, and, and so I love when people come up and say, you know, you know, the book I love is land of the blind. Cause I think it feels mm-hmm. like it got the least attention in my books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I always love it when someone appreciates the things that I liked. And- it's, it's probably my favorite, although I, I can't include beautiful ruins in with any of the other ones because it's just so much its own, its own thing. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, that one kind oh, of gets its own category, I suppose. Yeah, but, uh, but you must get that too from people where they come up and say, you know, that that they love this one or they love that one, and uh, the surprise of it, I just think, is so great. It's what well, the biggest thing that I enjoy is when they talk to you about a character that you've created and a story you've told as if it's a real person and something that really yeah. happened with, right. that, with that level of passion and uh, whether they love the character or hate the character, if, if they're having that emotional reaction to it, it feels like you did your job, you know, you moved them. It really does. And that, and you created that empathy, which mm-hmm. is the thing about all readers is that they're mm-hmm. going in, you know, they're, they're, they're living inside other lives for a while. Um, yeah, that's pretty great. And I, I love that readers can be as deluded as we are. We're the only people who are supposed to <laughs> walk around talking to our characters as if they're real. It does it does help you not worry quite so much about your sanity yeah. when other people take part in the, your particular yeah, brand exactly. of insanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only well, they could cover half the therapist bill. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, you, you wrote Citizen Vince, which was also a little bit of a hybrid uh, type of yeah. novel mixture of genres like you talked about. And then Crime, I think, was one of them. Um, yeah. And then The Zero, which was a kind of a departure from the others, or at least you went further down a road that, that the previous two or so had, had kind of started you on. Um, because that was one that was a little more, uh, a little more esoteric, a little bit more... Yeah difficult to get your hooks into as a reader. I think uh, uh, a couple people that I've, you know, that have read it that I've, well, which one did you like? And I don't know if I really like that one as much yeah. as the other ones. Cause they didn't quite, you know, get it. Cause it's a tough book. It's probably uh, of all the books I've read of yours, it's probably the, the most difficult one to digest. And uh, what were, what was going on with you when you, when you wrote that one? Oh, that's such a, that's such an interesting uh, question. Um, uh, so I was writing Citizen Vince and I had a New York cop in there. I, you know, had a, I, I had covered a story in Spokane about a guy in the witness protection program from, uh, 
from New York uh, or New Jersey, actually, who ends up in Spokane. And I had always thought it would be an interesting take for a novel. And it became you know, a very different novel than the story I had covered. But I, I, there was this New York cop character that I sort of wanted to write. And my publisher at the time was publishing the uh, memoir of Bernard Carrick, the police commissioner in New York, and wanted to know if I would help him rewrite his book. And at the time, I was doing some ghostwriting and some, you know, fancy editing to help pay the bills. And um, so I remember uh, going into his office, you know, the very first day meeting him in New York. And um, and I, the very first words out of his mouth were some fucking mutt just climbed to the top of the GW bridge. And I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to hear how these guys talk, you know, and, um, <laughs> they do uh, have and their it, own particular style oh, of talking man. on the East coast, don't they? Oh my God. I, I mean, if you're list, if, if you were just listening, it would take a half an hour to realize you're not watching the Sopranos, you know, it would. <laughs> and, and the way they call each other, boss, Hey boss, uh, B U O S S. Hey boss. <laughs> Yeah, we, we brought the truck. Everything's a truck, too. Every SUV is a truck. Hey, boss, we got the truck. Um, so anyway, that unbeknownst to me, uh, Carrick was a little bit of a shady personality. And, you know, even in my work with him, I, it, was, it was sort of an uncomfortable, strange um, thing to find myself in the Bernard Carrick, Rudy Giuliani um, uh, circle of things. But I helped do the book and at the very end of it, right when we had, when he'd turned his book in and I had helped him um, with the writing, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened and I, and the, the book had to be rewritten. So I flew into New York five days after the attacks, which is sort of when the novel starts. And it was a combination of sort of disorientation and, um, and then watching what was made of the attacks, watching the way mm-hmm. it was put into this sort of big American system and came out the other end as if you don't drink Budweiser, the terrorists have won or some insanity. It just, <laughs> it felt like this moment of total cultural insanity in which, in which we conflated, we, we conflated the idea of victim and hero and, um, and, and a whole lot of things were made of it that I didn't know how to, how to handle or how to write about in anything except a sort of Kafka-esque fictional style. Uh, I had gotten to know a couple of cops really well um, who were in the police commissioner's detail. And a couple of them, uh, when I first got to New York, uh, I did not work on the book. I went to Ground Zero with a couple of cops and we handed out granola bars and um, water to rescue workers. And we walked around the site. And at the time I arrived, there was still the idea that there might be survivors in the rubble. And and, and one of the police officers that I spent those days with had nearly lost his life. And he just kept taking me to the same place and telling me the story over and over about, you know, being blown underneath this car and, you know, the building just collapsing around him. And, and, and yet that combination of his intense, um, you know, grief and survivor's guilt about having survived when so many firefighters and police officers lost their lives. And then this, this cultural hash that came out of it. And then watching some of these, you know, some of the cops that I was working with take full advantage of it. Um, it again, I could not find any voice for the story except, uh, except kind of classic literary satire. And so the novel is, um, is a very dark Kafka-esque satire in, in which most novels, especially crime novels, move towards solution. 
And I wanted a novel that moved toward dissolution, toward the kind of um, collapse of understanding and meaning and reason. Um, it's a lot to ask for readers, and, and it is um, when we talked about those readers who, for whom, you know, a certain work is their favorite. There's always a sort of um, raccoon-eyed uh, grad student who's been studying the book and its many layers of symbolism and its and its um, literary allusions to every. You know, satirical work in history, and it's uh, um, and that comes up to me. It's like, you know, oh my God, the Zero is my favorite book, and uh, um, so that. Uh, but but it is, you know, when people tell me their book club is thinking of reading, I say, please, you should pick a different one. You know, um, <laughs> unless you're a postdoctoral uh, uh, student, um, it it can be a tough read. But I also think this the the humor that undercuts all my novels is mm -hmm. in that as well i mean i i think yeah. i think i think the only way to look at, at an absurd world is with um through absurdity the, yeah right through the glass of of humor yeah yeah uh, we'll get back to our discussion with uh, Jess in just a moment, but uh, this is the time in the show where I turn things over to a couple of experts. And by experts, I mean people who have a pretty good handle on what's a good book and what you might want to check out. Uh, this might be bookstore owners or people who work in bookstores or other authors uh, or super readers. And in this installment, we're going to hear from uh, former guests Lou Burney and former guest John Shepard. I'm Lou Burney, author of November Road, and a book I really love that just came out is Steph Chaw's Your House Will Pay. It's a really terrific crime novel set in Los Angeles, and I could not recommend it more highly. Hi, this is John Shepard, and I'd like to recommend uh, Lou Burney's November Road, a fantastic, incredible novel, which, uh, which takes place right after the Kennedy uh, assassination. A great read. So, uh, right on. Good recommendations, guys. Thank you. Uh, let's get back now to our discussion with Jess Walter. One of your other books that we haven't talked about yet, The Financial Lives of Poets. Yeah. That, I mean, I got to ask you, so did you get drunk with Jonathan Tropper and make a bet who could write the funniest book or something? I mean, was this, I, is that how that, yeah. is that is how this one came about? You know, it's, um, I wrote, I, I didn't, I had not even read Jonathan Tropper until <laughs> afterwards. But, um, you see uh, the, you see the, uh, yeah, the, the parallels though, right? Yeah, I the the process of writing zero sort of gutted me, honestly. It was, mm -hmm. um, and part I of imagine. it, I think, was yeah, it was reliving. You know, uh, I couldn't get the smell of those fallen buildings and um, and you know you and everything else out of my mind for the longest time. And it was, and I and I felt guilty writing satire about this thing that had taken a a place of reverence, you know, and um, in fact, my wife at one point said, I don't think you can publish this. I think you're going to get Dixie chicked, which I thought it was uh, amazing. <laughs> she used that as a verb. But afterward, I just wanted to write something light. And, and I was describing my work as comic to someone. And my wife said, 
I don't think your books are that funny. <laughs> so I'm going to write something really funny. So I write The Financial Lives of Poets, which is about, you know, a marriage crumbling as a guy, um, you know, loses his house and um, before marijuana was legalized, you know, uh, runs into a couple of uh, street kids and ends up selling pot to make money um, before someone called it breaking sad one time, which I thought was a great uh, description. But um, I wrote, th I wrote that book and my wife said, Oh, that's the least funny of them all, you know, just because it, <laughs> it, because it cuts so close to home. But yeah, that was, I, I, I really just wanted to write something that for me was a kind of palate cleanser, you know, that took away, um, you know, a, a, after sort of delving so deep and writing something as, um, as layered and difficult as the zero, I really wanted mm -hmm. something that for me as a writer, you know, f felt like, okay, I've, I've done that side of the album. Now I want some, you know, something lighter, I guess. Well, and it certainly is a palate cleanser if you're going from the zero to, to that. It's, yeah. Uh, to, yeah. It, it's it, honestly, it's difficult to believe the first, same person wrote both books are so different. So, uh, I, I mean, I think that's the cool thing about your progression of your novels is that it, it has uh, changed or they have uh, been so uh, different from each other. And yet there's a, a few common threads throughout the entirety. I find that to be the best compliment when people say it's hard to believe, you know, these books came from the same writer because, um, you know, I, I don't like to read the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, back to back. So I tend to work that way too. And I also probably published 120 short stories and I get to just spread my wings in those and do different things all the time. It's nice because you, with a novel, you, you're living with that for however long, you know, it takes you. Um, yeah. and, and then you're living with it again in revisions and then again in revisions and then again yeah. in revisions and yeah. uh, short story, you know, you can, you can, you know, write it in a very short period of time and, you know, revise it much more quickly and boom, now you have a completed, you know, this journey is complete. This experience is whole and it's, and you can send it out in the world and it's, it's finished. It's all its yeah, own it's thing. Pretty, pretty instantaneous. I, I always equate it to, like uh, writing a novel is moving in with someone, you know, and you're going to live <laughs> with them for three years and uh -huh. writing a short story is dating, you know? It's oh like, yeah. Uh, That's a I, great analogy. I, I may, we may go out a second time, but uh, if not, <laughs> we'll, we'll nice always have a dinner with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll always have swack hammers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you, the, your most recent book, uh, prior to the one you've got coming out here uh, was beautiful ruins. And that was a pretty big hit for you. I mean, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but from, from the outside looking in, that's your, that's your born in the USA in terms of uh, widespread appeal. Uh, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, it, it, on the inside, it felt much more like steps, you know, the, the mm -hmm. um, you know, citizen Vince won the Edgar award, which mm -hmm. um, yeah, made me sort of a, um, able to be published and then the very next year and it, and it was actually delayed they delayed the publication for a year because my sales were so bad <laughs> um I, that 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 barnes and noble ordered zero copies of the next book before they'd even seen it so they had to spend some time trying to sort of um uh you know convince barnes and noble which at the time was the amazon of the book world you know they were the mm -hmm. they, they sold you know more than I think a fourth of the copies or a third of books at that time. So, um, so there was a little gap between Citizen Vince and the zero, but 
after the zero then um, was a national book award finalist, then, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think those two had sort of established me as, um, you know, uh, uh, as at least having some, uh, you know, reputation as a writer and then financial lives of the poets sold really well and steadily. Um, And then, yeah, beautiful ruins was um, a big shock to everyone um, was on the bestseller list for more than a year in paper, in paperback and in hardcover and was number one for several weeks. Um, my that's agent ama- said, amazing. yeah, my agent said, I used, I sometimes negotiate, you know, bestseller bonuses, but with you, it hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I, I actually took to be a great compliment because it, 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 you know, the, we, we were talking about me, you know, sliding around from different idea to different idea, different form, you know, different tone. Um, but that's hard for readers to put their finger on, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't know where to find you and what to expect. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when I was, should have been maybe building a readership, you know, so to have beautiful ruins do as well as it did, it felt like I won a beauty contest I hadn't entered, honestly. <laughs> an Italian beauty contest at that. Yes, an Italian, right, an Italian uh, beauty contest. I'd also worked on it for about 15 years. Oh, wow. So I had written Financial Lives of the Poets and Citizen Vince and The Zero in all in the time that I had started this novel. Um, I had started it and set it aside and finished a draft. I finished one draft in 2007. So I finished one draft right after the zero came out, but I didn't like it. I just set it aside and thought I need to, I need to write something else and I'll get this novel eventually. And so I, I think, I also think that book benefits from the amount of life that has gone into it. You know, when I started Mm -hmm. the novel, my mother was still alive and she passed away. Um, I had one child and by the time I finished it, I had three and my oldest had gone off to college. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that thing we talked about empathy in books, I also think they're about time. I also think they're very much temporal and uh, the time and the amount of life that I'd lived between um, the starting of the novel in 96, 97 and the finish of it, you know, in, in 2012 when it came out was um, I think that's I think that shows up in the scope of the story. Did you uh, spend some time in Italy for uh, research purposes? I always get embarrassed because people assume you must have lived in Italy for a year and I uh, spent a total of about five days in uh, in the Cinque Terre. Which 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 one? Um, Well my wife and I we so in we went to Italy for the first time in 1997. My wife's Italian, second generation, or her, her grandparents emigrated. So mm-hmm. her mother is an Italian citizen still. Um, and so we were visiting family all over, up and down the boot. She has relatives mm-hmm. in Rome and in um, uh, Torino and uh, up in these small villages near the uh, Adriatic and or in uh, Ancona. And we were just trying to get away from family. And we took the train to the Cinque Terre and we got off pouring rain um it was february we got up in the first city to the south um or no to the north sorry monterosso almare um and and we were and the slashing rain were the only tourists who got off the train there and we ran to our hotel and checked into the albergo pasquale um which pasquale becomes the name of the main character Mm -hmm. and in in the morning i opened our wooden shutters um and there uh you know was the 
was the sea, the blue sea out in front of us, and the sun had come out, and we had this amazing tourist-free couple of days in the Cinque Terre, um, and I just fell in love with it. And I, as a Spokane kid who's never really lived anywhere else, I just said, that's the most beautiful place. I'm going to write a novel about that someday. And I started writing a novel. Um, my mom had just, when we got back, my mom was diagnosed with stomach cancer, and I began writing a novel um, about a place in which um, I, it was going to be a sort of magical realism novel like Gabriel Garcia Marquez about a place where you, where cancer couldn't kill you. Uh, and that's what the original, um, you know, the original impetus was. That quickly fell away, uh, and I just had this woman arriving in in um, Italy and in you know in the Cinque Terre. And then I invented my own village just because that seemed like a you know like a freer way to write about it, so I wouldn't have uh, people questioning my details. Um, and then I went back in about two thousand eight and. Uh, and revisited it and really tried to ground it and, you know, and, and really rethought the novel. But I, I had on and off 50, 70, 100, 120, 170, and then I'd tear it up and start over and I'd have 30 pages I liked and then 50. And all these other stories started weaving their way in and, the, you know, the, the, the structure of the novel became almost like this, um, like this elaborate puzzle I kept putting together with myself and tearing apart. And I had different versions where, you know, different people died at different times. At one point, I put myself in the novel as a kind of metafictional character selling a script for uh, the zero for my own novel. And then I tore that out and threw that away. So there were just so many rewrites of me trying to get the story right. Um, and then, but by the end, when you spend 15 years with characters, that thing we talked about, they became so real to me that when I finished the right. novel, I missed them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I kind of cried and I thought, oh, I'm not yeah. going to get to spend any more time with those people. Well, uh, you don't get to, but then all the readers got to. So it worked out. Uh, at least yeah. For some people. Yeah. And that- and that's so rewarding. And my books have, you know, I've been lucky enough to remain in print and have books uh, published in you know, so many different languages and so many different places. But um, yeah, to have the readership that that one got, you, you, you know, you could really tell a difference, I guess, in scale, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, and, you know, just to have that many readers come to a book uh, and have it, you know, um, published in 30 countries or something is really, mm-hmm. yeah, it really humbles you. We went over to Italy uh, right after I retired in uh, 2013 with my parents and uh, oh, did you? Yeah. spent a couple of days in the Cinque Terre. We were at the other end, though. We were in Rio Maggiore, the, oh, the, yeah. small, the yeah. smallest of the five. And yeah. the, when you talk about that view out, out into the into the uh. sea, it's just it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I haven't gone back and reread Beautiful Ruins since then. Uh, probably have a different view in my head when I do because I've yeah. seen it myself, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I do get a lot of. I mean, if I could make every reader, uh, you know, go to the go to it, the coast of Italy and read the book, it would sell even more copies. You know? <laughs> but, yeah, people are always just saying, like, I read it. You know, I, I read it in in the Italian Riviera, and it's unbelievable. And I mean, it, writers have been drawn to that area, Byron and Shelley. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, forever, uh, you know, Frankenstein was written that, on that coast. And so I, I think it does something about that place really sparks writers, which is why, you know, one of the characters mm-hmm. I created was a writer. But it is, it is amazing how welcoming 
um, you know, once, you know, the Italians are when they, you know, mm-hmm. when they, when you connect with anyone in the, in the village you're from, the first word that I had to learn in Italy was basta enough. <laughs> Just kept filling my plate in my glass, you know, basta, basta. Yeah, yeah. The people there are are just as important as the setting. I think when it is uh, when it comes to creating the the overall sense of the place. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And it and and you want to do right by that, you know. Without um, especially when you like me, when you parachute in, and um, you know, I always joke, and it's not even that much of a joke that I can trace my lineage all the way to a train that my hobo grandfather arrived on. And that's about as far as it goes, you know, it like becomes really fuzzy somewhere past the Dakotas, you know? And so, um, so to have my wife have, you know, uh, you can go to the village where her family was from and open a Bible and every generation of her family is recorded back until, you know, the 1500s or something. It's wild. Wow. And um, one of those, you know, those villages that look like they're the top of a mountain until you get close mm-hmm. and you realize that's the castle, you know, that's the walls of the village. Mm-hmm. And so that was amazing to see and to see that connection to a place and to, you know, um, to your roots and, um, you know, I just have never had that, you know, growing up as, mm-hmm. as I did. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're still located there in Spokane. I mean, you, you haven't uh, gone Hollywood or, or anything like that. Oh, I go Hollywood every day. I, I walk around as <laughs> I, I uh, tell my wife, my, I'm in the most boring episode of Entourage ever. It's all just, a, it's all just me walking around, imagining I'm a big deal. So. Well, well <laughs> yeah, I, live, uh, I live in the West Central. Live, um, uh, you know, I've never lived more than a mile or so from the river. I just, that's, mm-hmm. you know, I've never lived on, on the South Hill. For those who don't know Spokane, that's kind of where the little bit of money here congregates. And I've just, yeah, I've always kind of loved living along the river. And, but, but, and it's a great home base. It's, you know, great supportive readers and, you know, people. And so I get to travel from here. I, I do have to go to Hollywood sometimes to write to get paid to write screenplays they have no intention of making. But um, for the most part, um, uh, I just do my writing in, in this little office above my garage where I'm working uh-huh. right now. All, all kidding aside, do you do you feel like there's a, I mean, there's got to be some element of celebrity for you there in Spokane, being uh, as well known as you are in the literary world and you're still home-based right there? Yeah, um, there's some. I mean, there there's famous and then there's writer famous you know and um that's so true (laughs) and writer famous means every once in a while someone will look at your credit card and say oh that just walter and i'll say yeah and they'll say oh and they'll give you your credit card back you know and that's pretty much (laughs) and they only want your autograph because you you owe them yeah (laughs) yeah right yeah there here you go 7250 but you got to have pretty good turnouts at uh the bookstores and such though yeah, no, and I, and again, the, and people are so nice. And sometimes, you know, um, like I, I in fact, uh, Terry Morehouse and I used to meet at the Rocket uh, Coffee Shop, which is now called Boots down on Maine. And, um, uh, and, and we would meet there and, you know, and I was there one day and a woman came up with some books to have me sign. And I said, oh, how did you find me? And she said, they told me at the Chamber of Commerce that you have coffee here. <laughs> so, there are moments like that every once in a while where you just sort of laugh, you know, and, um, and I've had people 
come here from Germany to take the Spokane tour, you know, to see the waterfalls from over tunnel mm-hmm. graves. And, mm-hmm. you know, they want to know where the donut shop from citizen Vince is. And, you know, and it, they're always heartbroken to find out I made it up, you know? So yeah. Sam, um, Sam's pit is closed. <laughs> Sam's so. pit is closed. I know all the, all, all the good places are gone, yeah. but yeah, there it's, it's really nice. And, you know, just having written, for so many years where I thought I was just entertaining myself, you know, and I was just writing things that I liked to have other people come along on the journey is so flattering. And yeah, in Spokane, they're great. The, you know, but I, it's also my son and I were getting theater tickets in New York one time and um, I gave her my credit card and and she said, are you the Jess Walter? And I said, I'm a Jess Walter. And she said, the novelist. And I said, yeah. And someone behind me said, is it Jess Walter? And I turn and my son's looking at me like, what's happening? And then another woman starts taking, pulls out her camera phone and starts taking photos of me. And she turns to the next person and says, who are we taking pictures of? <laughs> so, um, you know, two people, two people have heard of you. And the third person starts taking your picture, which is a sort of An definition of, yeah, definition of fame in, in uh, the year 2019. But uh, I was so glad my son got to see that happen, you know, because um, to see that his doofus dad, uh, that someone recognizes y- your name, you know, and got to be to a me, rock star. Yeah, but the great thing about being a writer is that if someone recognizes your name, it's because they have gone to the hard work of reading a book. Mm-hmm. You know, they and most people don't. You know, a lot of the readers of Beautiful Runes, if they, you asked who wrote it, they say, "Oh, I don't know, he's got a woman's name or something." Or they half the time they think <laughs> Jess Walter is female, and so even all the readers don't recognize your name. It takes a reader like I was as a kid who carried his favorite books around and thought of the authors as friends. And so mm-hmm. when someone comes up and, and says that they like your work, it, these are like pieces of music that we've written that they then have to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not like they just watched a TV show or saw you were in people magazine or something. They've, mm-hmm. they've taken the work you created and really, you know, kind of made it their own. So I, I really think of it as incredible when anyone comes up and, you know, tells me that they can't wait for my next book or, um, except for, except for my mailman, my, I had a mailman who would say, you know, uh, where's your next book? And I, and I would say, I'm working on it. And he'd say, well, you know, James Patterson has two books out this year. And I said, yeah, I know he's more prolific than I am. You know, he's, he, I think he's really worried about me that I'm, uh, that I'm not writing fast enough, but for the, the most part, I, I mean, when people, you know, want to talk about the books, I just find it endlessly flattering. Well, you've got quite the catalog. Uh, I think it's an admirable uh, catalog in, in the way that it's evolved. Um, I, I take a little bit of uh, of hometown pride in the fact that you're from oh. Spokane, and uh, I really want to say thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Frank, and I'll keep uh, sending people who want. Uh, who want more procedural in their procedurals your way, if you don't mind. I don't mind one bit. (laughs) That's great. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, That's that's my conversation with uh, Jess Walter. Fascinating guy. Uh, Very nice guy, as you could tell. Uh, And I love his work. It's it's very wide-ranging and different. Uh, And that's kind of exciting to find a writer that you enjoy his or her style of writing and then to go on a journey that isn't the same book over and over again, necessarily. Uh, Some people can write a series that's uh, essentially the same 
character doing very similar things over and over again for a long time and be very successful at keeping your interest in doing so. I can think of a, a few examples. Michael Connolly would be one. Uh, but uh, it's another thing entirely to, to go on a journey with an author where uh, uh, he or she takes you maybe to places you wouldn't have gone. I mean, maybe some people who like crime fiction and enjoyed over-tumbled graves or Land of the Blind might not be willing to try Beautiful Ruins if they hadn't have followed uh, Jess on that journey to that book. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. On our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Charles Salzberg, a very cool guy who I uh, got to meet again at BoucherCon uh, this last year uh, in November. And he has some interesting uh, approaches to a couple of his different uh, series that he's written. Uh, we had a nice conversation, and i um, looking forward to sharing it with you. Quick Zafiro update for you. No new books this month, <laughs> so uh, taking a deep breath because uh, January is going to be a little bit crazy. Januarys are going to be pretty big. I'd like to thank uh, Jess for coming on the show, making the time, uh, and uh, we ended up talking longer than expected, and uh, it was great. Thanks to Lou Burney and uh, John Shepard for their book recommendations, uh, Down Out Books for sponsoring the show, and as always, to you, the listener, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can uh, share, like, and uh, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, subscribe. It would be very helpful. But regardless, uh, thanks for listening. Charles Salzberg, next episode. Until then, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.